it's not as simple as you make a product and then you go off and sell it. You make a piece of technology which provides a utility to the industry, but then you have to make sure you build demand and supply that matches almost simultaneously. And if you build supply too soon and you don't have enough demand, you can cause sort of missed expectations and vice versa. So it's very challenging to build a two-sided market and to make sure that you build supply and demand that actually match. Welcome to Changing Careers, a podcast about the changing nature of MBA careers and how MBAs can change their careers. I am Conrad Chua. We've all read stories of how tech giants like Amazon or Uber have disrupted traditional industries by building two-sided networks. This is about building a platform that brings together sellers and buyers in a much more efficient way. But this also involves convincing large numbers of people to change their established behavior and that's hard. Today, you'll hear from someone who's doing exactly that. I was in New York and visited Gordon Down, an entrepreneur who's building the New York Shipping Exchange, or NYSHEX. First, I asked Gordon to explain what was the problem NYSHEX was trying to solve. So NYSHEX is an exchange for the container shipping industry. And I think it may be interesting to explain the container shipping industry first, and then I can tell you how the company solves some problems that it faces. So the container shipping industry is massive, $380 billion of uh, revenue, and about 160 million TUs or containers get shipped around the world every year. So a huge, huge market. What we do in this market is we bring a mechanism that allows for contracting to be done digitally and a mechanism for clearing and securing contracts so we remove some of the risk in the process and this is a problem that the industry currently grapples with and our technology and our process and our compliance model helps the industry overcome some of these challenges with contracting and the clearing of contracts most people don't want to know very much about the container shipping industry so in terms of the contracts who are the players we're talking about you you mentioned the shipping lines but there are also people like freight forwarders etc is that right yeah, so I think the way to think about this industry is there are three big players. You have what we call the carriers. These are the people who own the ships and operate them. Uh, so Maersk, for example, is the largest carrier in the world, my firm, former employer, actually one of our investors. And there's a number of really big carriers that basically provide all this global transportation service, like uh, CMACGM, Lloyd, OCL, Costco, HMM, etc., on the other side, we have shippers, so people who need to move cargo from one port to another. So that could be companies like retailers, like uh, Walmart and uh, Target and others like that, um, to companies that ship commodities. And there's many different companies who fall into the category of shipper, i.e. they move goods around the world in containers. And then we have another category of player in the industry called freight forwarder. In the United States, we call them non-operating vessel common carrier or NVOCC. That's the acronym we use. And freight forwarders are basically brokers in the process. So they will have a lot of times contracts with carriers um, where they might have some form of favorable pricing or favorable service terms. They will also have service contracts or service with local truck operators and customs, and then they package those services together and sell them on to shippers like, that may not have direct contracts with carriers. 
So um, a shipper like Amazon or Walmart, they would have a free forwarder, or, uh, and then they the free forwarders work with the carriers. Is that right? Yes and no. It's a little more nuanced. Let me explain. So a big company like Walmart will buy their ocean freight directly from the carrier. They'll have a procurement team that's responsible for managing these contracts with the carriers. A small shipper who might be just moving a handful of containers here and there um, will buy most certainly from a freight forwarder because they won't have the procurement capabilities or the buying power. And then, of course, it's a spread between really big players and really small players. It's a mixed bag. Some use freight forwarders, some do not. But I think it's important to mention that virtually every company uses a freight forwarder to some extent, whether that's for clearing customs or arranging trucking or providing visibility. Some companies have their own freight forwarder in-house. Other companies use an outsourced freight forwarder. But um, freight forwarders kind of glue all the components of the supply chain together. And always remember, ocean shipping is just one because you always have to put it on a truck before or afterwards. And, and there's many other processes in the, in the supply chain. So what was the problem that NYSHEX was trying to, is trying to solve? So I think the problem we're solving is one of risk. And let me explain this to you in a different way. Container shipping has two big challenges. Challenge number one is that it's very volatile. So the price of container shipping moves up and down um, dramatically. In fact, the number is 36%. That's the standard deviation as a percentage of average, 36%. And if you compare that to, for example, the oil market, that's only 16%. So the container shipping prices are incredibly volatile, double the volatility. What's causing that volatility? It basically comes down to the perishability of the product. So when a container ship leaves Hong Kong and sails across the Pacific, when that vessel leaves the port, whatever space is not filled perishes. It's completely different to if you're producing beer and you don't sell all your produce today, where you can sell it tomorrow. In container shipping, if you don't fill your ship today, it's perished. So what that does is when the ships are full, then it becomes somewhat of a bidding war to get your cargo on that ship and it drives the prices up really high. When the ships are empty, the carriers scramble to fill up those ships with space or with cargo so that they don't perish the space on those vessels and the price drops through the floor. So the volatility is largely driven by the perishability of the product. But as I was saying, that's the first challenge we are solving is the one of price volatility. And you don't know what price you're going to have to pay when you ship your goods until you get very close to the time of shipping the goods. The exchange solves that problem. There's another problem we solve, and that's one of counterparty risk or reliability. So let me give you some numbers. In the container shipping industry, around a quarter of every container that's booked doesn't show up. That's the industry average. On some trades, it's about half. So for a carrier, if you're expecting a full ship and suddenly a quarter of it doesn't show up, you have a lot of perished inventory, if you want to call it that. So the way carriers deal with it is they're overbook. So if you think, well, maybe only a quarter of my cargo is going to uh, downform, that's what the industry term is, I might overbook my ship by a quarter. And the problem with that is sometimes you get it right and your overbookings make up for your downfalls, but sometimes you get it wrong and you don't overbook enough or you overbook too much and then you have cargo left on the key side. And of course, shippers know that this is the case. So a lot of times they'll book the same container with multiple carriers just to have options. So it creates a really vicious cycle. And this 
what effectively is a counterparty risk. You don't know if you can trust your shipper if you're a carrier, and likewise if you're a shipper, you don't know if you can trust your carrier. Uh, so the way the exchange solved this problem is by requiring all the players in the market to put down some form of security. So if you take a contract on the exchange, you have an incentive to show up with your goods uh, if you're the shipper. And if you're the carrier, you have an incentive to load the goods on the ship. And if you don't, you lose your deposit or your down payment. So this is what provides more reliability. And if you're a shipper and you know that your carrier has made a commitment through the exchange, you can have more confidence that they are going to have the space when you need it. And likewise, if you're the shipper, um, the carrier can trust that you're going to show up with the goods on the vessel that they're planning you for. In a way, that means that uh, you're providing the kind of reliability, uh, both in terms of shipping, but also in terms of, of, of the price itself. Is that right? Yes, it's, it's exactly right. So the reliability that you get by using the exchange is, number one, more than 99% of all the shipments that get contracted through the exchange actually ship exactly as intended. So we increase the reliability from 75% to 99%. And then as it relates to price, like I said before, one of the challenges is the shipper. You don't know how much you're going to pay for your goods until you get quite close to the time of departure. Um, sometimes you might pay a lot more than you expect. Sometimes you pay less than you expect. It's difficult to plan if that's the case. And likewise for the carrier, you don't know how much revenue you're going to generate from that vessel. So what the exchange does is it locks in the price. So you can lock in the price up to six months into the future. And therefore, if you're a shipper, you know exactly what your landed cost will be. And if you're a carrier, you know how much revenue you're going to generate from that vessel based on the cargo you've secured. It seems like you're, you're building a two-sided kind of platform because you've got to work with shippers and carriers. I mean, is, is that correct? And what were some of the challenges of building that kind of um, network where I guess the perception is very, uh, all the players tend to be quite set in their ways. It's quite a long-standing kind of industry. Yeah, it's a great question. And that's one of the challenges that any, um, I would say, exchange or marketplace has to grapple with because it's not as simple as you make a product and then you go off and sell it. You make a piece of technology which provides a utility to the industry, but then you have to make sure you build demand and supply that matches almost simultaneously. And if you build supply too soon and you don't have enough demand, you can cause sort of missed expectations and vice versa. So it's very challenging to build a two-sided market and to make sure that you build supply and demand that actually match. So this is something that we've been grappling with. Um, it's There's a couple of things you can do to minimize the risk of missed expectations. And of course, the key part is to, to focus on one side first. And we did that with supply. And then to be really deliberate about focusing on what type of markets or what segments within the market you want to build and engage the providers of the supply in that process so they can help build the demand. But it's not easy. Uh, it takes a lot of time and effort. And I a huge amount of coordination between the players in the market. The supply, that would be uh, the carriers, is that right? Correct, yeah. And in terms of the supply, I mean, um, are you also to think talking about not just a particular carrier, but particular routes uh, that, that you provide on the exchange? That's right. So we focus in on, right now, the Trans-Pacific trade route. So in other words, goods moving from the United States to Asia and from Asia to the United States. But we narrow it down even further. So for example, we've said on the Trans-Pacific from the US to Asia, we've zeroed in on the agriculture segment. So we've worked with the supply partners to say, the carriers to say, okay, 
Make sure you put offers on the exchange that are relevant to this segment. Uh, make sure you cover the ports that they're interested in. Um, let's do some joint marketing to make sure that they understand that your offers are on the exchange. And then we can really focus in our resources on that one segment. Of course, if you try and spread yourself too broad and focus on the market as a whole, um, I don't think you'll see any traction. So you have to be incredibly focused. And then likewise, on the inbound cargo moving from Asia into the United States, we focused on very specific segments and been very deliberate about putting our resources into those segments rather than trying to go too broad. How has NYSHEX um, grown in the, in the few years that it's, uh, since it started? I'll tell you a little bit of the story behind it. So we began working on this company in 2012 as an internal project while some of us were still at Maersk. And it's been a very, very gradual process. We quit our day jobs and started working on this project in 2015. And we finally launched in 2017. In fact, we've been live in operation for just over a year now. So it's been quite a gradual process. But let me explain why that's the case. We operate in a business-to-business environment. There's a lot of complexity and getting companies to change workflows, getting companies to adopt new methods of contracting. And that just takes a lot of time working with key stakeholders, getting them comfortable. Also takes a lot of work to make sure that what we're doing is compliant because there's a lot of regulatory barriers we have to overcome. And when the shipping regulations were written in 1998, people didn't really anticipate digital contracting or exchanges and how that might affect the market. So we've had to work very closely with our regulator to get uh, get the momentum that we need to, to do what we do today. So to answer your question more specifically, where we are is we've, like I said, we have operations in the US and we have operations in Asia with our uh, regional office based in Hong Kong, but presence in mainland China as well. We have six of the world's top 10 carriers that are active on the exchange that represents around 52% of the world's capacity. Um, We have about 150 different shipper members, which includes shippers like um, restoration hardware and retailers, freight forwarders like Damco and, and some of the other respected names in the industry. So we've got a good base of members that are actively trading on the exchange every single day. Um, And, yeah, things are moving moving quite rapidly at this stage. But I will say that it's taken us a long time to get to this point just because of the complexity around, I think, running a, a transformative business in a, in a business-to-business environment. You talked about digital contracts. And in an earlier episode, we had someone from... Uh, IBM's head of global head of blockchain in UK and Ireland talk about how blockchain could really revolutionize how global trade is done. I think he quoted something like huge percent, thirty percent of the cost of tr- of shipping is just an administrative. So, what do you think is the impact of say blockchain on global trade? It's a very good question, and I'm not sure I have a clear answer on that. I will say this: that there are a tremendous amount of documents and data that flows around with every shipment. And obviously, because every shipment has to go through usually two customs authorities, sometimes more, there has to be many truckers involved. There's obviously an ocean carrier that gets involved. Um, Sometimes there's transshipments or multi-modes of transport, and sometimes you mix air and ocean together. So the data and documents that represent right of title are significant and blockchain i think will evolve to a position where it can address a lot of that so i think the opportunity is enormous how that works in the short term really remains to be seen the technology of course is quite new um 
driving change in this industry is very difficult, as we know, because like I've just said, it takes it took us a long time to get to where we are. So I think it will move in that direction. I don't think it's going to happen quickly. I think it will be gradual. But I do think that the results, when we look back over time, the results will be quite staggering in terms of what can be accomplished with technology versus the current very manual uh, way of doing doing shipping today. Personally, how do you feel about now being in a startup environment instead of being in a huge conglomerate? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I reflect about that a lot, actually. So first of all, I'll say that I absolutely love working in a startup. It's probably one of the most liberating things you can do with your career. You have so much flexibility to do things that would be impossible within a big global conglomerate, and that's that's absolutely exhilarating. Of course, there's some good things about being in a startup. It's all that freedom, flexibility, um, just the energy that comes with it. Um, but if I look back at my corporate life, a lot of times I was able to leave the office on a Friday evening and not have to think too much about work on the weekend. And, you know, it's pretty stable. You didn't have to worry so much about how much runway you had. The business had been run for years and you just are constantly continuing to improve on the underlying processes and try and be more competitive in a market that's pretty well established. In our industry, we're doing things that have never been done before. So there's so much more risk. There's never a Friday I leave the office where I don't take my laptop home. And it's virtually every weekend that I've got um, calls with colleagues or work that needs to be done. Uh, and the the workload and the pressure is enormous. So sometimes I look back on my days in corporate and think it would be nice to have a weekend, but I don't have to worry about the company. Um, but overall, I think that it's far more at least for me, I enjoy being in a startup far more than I did working in big corporate. What advice would you give to MBAs who are thinking of doing a similar career transition? So we've had experience working in a large corporation, but have that itch to do a startup? I'd say just go for it. Um, it's daunting in the beginning. And I think a lot of people who would be great entrepreneurs and potentially could do industry transformative things or you know life-changing things don't do it because they're afraid um i will say this if i look back on my own journey into entrepreneurship i had no idea how difficult it would be in fact i thought it would be way easier than it is but i still don't regret the decision i'm still very pleased that i made the decision to become an entrepreneur and uh, i don't i don't regret it at all but it takes it's it's a bold move, and in my case, I had a you know a, a young daughter, and my wife was pregnant with with my son when we when I quit my day job to start working on this project. And there's a there's a lot of risk that goes with it, but you know fortune favors the bold. You did an MBA probably about almost ten years ago now. Um, how has that helped you in your career since then, especially now in a startup like Nishex? There's been so many ways my MBA has helped to get us to where we are today. And I'll just put them into three distinct categories. Category number one is just what I learned in the business school and how that's helped me to progress further down the, the path in developing the product and the technology. Uh, category number two is some of the people on the alumni that have really helped to um, to build the company with me. And I can tell some stories on that one. Category number three is just... Quite frankly, having a Cambridge MBA gives you somewhat of an edge when you're dealing with uh, key stakeholders, especially in an early stage company. Um, so let me go through each one of those three things. So first of all, what did I learn in the MBA that's helped NYSHEX become what it is today? 
I joined, well, I started my MBA at Cambridge with a great deal of knowledge in the shipping space, very little knowledge in industries outside of shipping. Once I learned about finance, commodity markets, how options work, how futures contracts worked, contangos, backwardation, all these wonderful financial concepts that no one in the shipping industry learns naturally, I had the benefit of learning these things um, through Cambridge. And having that knowledge and going back into the shipping industry really equipped me to see our industry through a completely different lens to what I had seen it before before I did my MBA. So I think just being equipped with the skill set, which is obviously far more broad than what you have going into it, uh, was absolutely critical to the success of, of the company. The other piece I said, the second piece was the alumni. So there have been so many people on the uh, MBA that have been absolutely instrumental in helping us to, uh, to progress. So I'm just going to name drop a few people, but we've got some of our investors are ex-MBAs, so, um, Ziad Mentora, Mark Den, John Gant, um, Mark Weaver. Mark Weaver was an MPhil and not an MBA, but we work very closely between the MBAs and the MPhils while I was at Cambridge. And so these people have been investors. Um, many of them have actually been really for many years, and he helped us make a lot of our decisions around technology. Um, John Gantz, one of our investors, is really well um, connected and positioned within Washington, D.C. and the government. And I think he's helped us to think through what we need to do to be compliant from a regulatory standpoint and how to make sure we engage our stakeholders. You know, Mark Weaver's helped us with a lot of our fundraising and, you know, he's been phenomenal in what he's done. And there have been many others who, you know, I can't even remember how, or I certainly can remember, but I can't mention how they've been helpful. But the alumni is unequivocally unequivocally the most valuable element of what I got out of the MBA. And then the final point is just having the Cambridge MBA in your resume. For me, this is quite surprising, but when you're an early stage company and you're going to pitch to VCs and they see a million different MBA or a million different startups come in, you know, having that Cambridge MBA does lend a little bit more credibility. And I think that for me, that's, that's something which it's difficult to, it's difficult to put a price tag on it, but it, it gives an edge that, you wouldn't necessarily have without it. With an endorsement like that, I'm almost tempted to launch into my rendition of Jesse J's price tag, but I'll spare you. Trust me, you'll thank me for it. I was grateful to Gordon for hosting my visit to Nishex and sharing this conversation with you. It was great to hear how he used his network to help his career transition and startup. And even if you aren't making a big career switch at the moment, you can still think about how to better use your network. Remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others discover this show. You've been listening to me, Conrad Chua, and I look forward to speaking to you in two weeks' time for another episode of Changing Careers.